It's so welcome, and uh, thank you to everybody who participated already this morning. And I think even, you know, the way it's amazing how the Lord works because we didn't really coordinate very well. And I think all the songs that Rob chose, I'm like, man, that's a song that I would have picked if I had known what I was speaking on today. So um, that's perfect. Um, like Bob has said, uh, I'm preaching on today on Mark 11. And if you're not a regular here, I'm not the regular pastor. He's away today. And so he's asked me to speak today, and I was supposed to speak next time when he was supposed to speak today. And so we swapped, and it just turns out that um, the passage that I was supposed to speak on next time is actually being spoken on today, which happens to be Palm Sunday, which is the passage about Palm Sunday, which it turns out isn't actually Palm Sunday, but should have been Palm Monday. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> So just to get caught up a little bit on, on what's been happening, so we, we preached through the book of Mark, and so we're journeying along with Jesus and his ministry, and so for about three years now, Jesus has been, um, you know, obviously he's growing up, and then as, as an adult, he started his ministry, and he's been traveling through the countryside, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and he's been proclaiming himself as the Messiah, and um, gathering people to follow behind him, he's got his 12 disciples, and increasingly riling up the, the Jewish leaders. Um, Palestine at the time was occupied by the Romans as a military occupation or sort of political occupation. So they're kind of watching this whole thing unfold. And um, Jesus has declared himself several times now to be the Messiah, the, prophet, the promised Messiah that the Jews are all waiting for. And um, so they're starting to build this, this tension like, hey, maybe he is the one. He's, he's the coming redeemer that's going to save us, as has been prophesied by the ancient prophets, and will drive out the Romans and establish this new kingdom. And indeed, Jesus is talking about a new kingdom. But there's some confusion here, because it's, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where uh, you're having a conversation, maybe it's with your spouse, and you're, you're both talking about what you think is the same thing, but it's really about a different thing. And then it turns out that Oh, I thought you meant this. No, I thought you meant that. Well, that's kind of what it was like here. Jesus was talking about himself being Messiah, establishing a kingdom. Everybody else was thinking this was some kind of a, a great military, like a, uh, you know, he's going to overthrow the government, make a rebellion. And Jesus is saying, no, this is a different kind of kingdom. And I am the true Messiah that's going to bring a different kind of kingdom to you. So um, this, is, this is the background here. As we've traveled through Mark, there's a couple of, instances here where Jesus is, you know, and, and I'm reading this and I'm going, man, Jesus is so patient because he's reminding people over and over and over again, right? So a um, little bit of a recap, Mark 8, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, weeks ago or months ago, um, Jesus said, you know, who do people say I am? Well, you're the Messiah, right? And so Jesus says the suffering that's going to come and Peter rebukes him and says, no, we're not going to let this happen to you. Again in Mark 9, um, Jesus explains that he's going to die and he's going to rise again from the dead. And it says they didn't understand what this meant. Later in Mark 9, verse 30, um, again Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. Again, he still didn't get it, right? Mark 10, 
On the way up to Jerusalem, Jesus is even more explicit. And this is just prior to our passage today. And you've got uh, James and John kind of arguing about who gets to sit where in the coming kingdom. They're still thinking this this is kind of a kingdom here that's got thrones and seats and government ministers and things like that. So they still don't get it. They still don't get the fact that Jesus is in fact coming to a place where he's going to offer himself as the ultimate Passover lamb. So let's read this passage today. I invite you to uh, Mark 11. And the heading in your Bible is probably the same as in mine. Uh, Verse 1. The triumphal entry. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell him, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied to a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing trying to untie that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's just pray for understanding this morning. Lord, thank you for the privilege to be in your house together, to worship together, and to read your word together, Lord. I pray that the words that I speak are not my words, but your words, Lord, and I find that we find open ears and open hearts, Lord, and that we would understand the message that you have for us this morning in a, in a new way that would change our lives this week, Lord. Great to see you. So we've got a map here somewhere that uh, I thought was kind of good to look at. So, um, again, if we had done everything in sequence, last week we would have talked about Jesus' previous journey. So he's coming through Jericho, which is up on the top corner there. Um, something I never really thought about is this like negative sea level elevation, minus 850 feet. Um, and so Jesus is coming along, he's been coming along this road. So they come up here, apparently this is about 30 kilometers. So now we're in Bethany and we're going up to Jerusalem, which is an elevation of 2,500 feet above sea level. And so, um, that's where the story is starting to take place right now in Bethany. And then we've got a second half here, which is a bit more of a close-up. And there's Bethany over there. And the 3D doesn't come out as good on this as it did when I looked at it. But there's a valley here, the Kidron Valley, right? So there's Bethany, there's Bethphage, Mount of Olives. And for those of us here, you know, we're used to big mountains and big valleys and rocky mountains and stuff. I think these are just hills, and they had no other hills for reference, so they called the mountains. <laughs> so it's Hill of Olives, and then there's the Temple Mount, which is Jerusalem, literally a city on a hill. Um, at least they got that one right, they didn't call it a mountain. Well, Mount Zion, but anyways, you can see the switchbacks here, right? So quite a climb up into the into the city. So, um, 
So this is the setting for the story today. So Jesus had just uh, come out of Jericho and where he healed blind Bartimaeus and he's traveling and now they're lodging in Bethany. And in Jericho already, there's this great crowd following him, right? So imagine, so there's Jesus, there's his inside circle of 12 disciples and then there's the outer circle, all these people that are following along, this great preacher, some are believing that he is the Messiah. Maybe some are following along because they just there's this spectacle. This guy's going around healing people and doing great, you know amazing miracles and and also um, jousting with the with the, the Pharisees and you know putting some some words to them and and it must have been you know quite something to see. So there's all these people following along. Now, they had come upon the village of Bethany. Maybe we'll just leave that map up here for just another minute. So they came up to Bethany, and uh, Bethany's significant because that was the home of Lazarus, Lazarus um, who had been dead, and Jesus had raised him. And also there's Mary and Martha. Now, the Gospel of Mark doesn't go into this, but some of the other Gospels give us details that he was staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And so the crowd was even building because of that, because Lazarus is this guy that was dead. Everybody knew he was dead, and now he's alive again, and people were coming there to see this spectacle of this previously dead person. And some of the other Gospels also tell us that this was such a, the fact that Lazarus was alive was such a, a miracle and such a ministry and such a witness to Jesus' power that the Pharisees had actually plotted to kill Lazarus again, like he was that dangerous of a, of a, like a political, not that he was political, but man, if we can just get rid of this guy, put him back in the ground again, we can finally quash this whole thing that Jesus is, he's trying to talk about this new kingdom. And Jesus is getting all these followers, taking away from the followers of, of those who had the religious power. So there's this crowd gathering, they're also gathering because it's the Passover. The Passover is a feast that's, that's um, the, the time is nigh. And so all these crowds, all these people from all around were starting to gather in Jerusalem. And Bethany and Bethage were two little villages that were known as sort of outlying lodging villages where all of these people would come um, in preparation for the Passover feast. Um, the Pharisees had put out Kind of the equivalent of a help of a, of a most wanted poster, not a help wanted poster. We see this <laughs> today. Most wanted, right? They they put the word out on the street. They said, if you guys see Jesus, if he's coming, if you guys see him, let us know because we want to finally take this guy out. He's dangerous to what we're doing. We don't like him. He's he's drawing a crowd. Let's finally get rid of him. Um, they had put instructions out. If you see Jesus, let us know. We're going to take care of him. There's a great expectation because. It was the Passover feast. There was large crowds gathering. Would Jesus come to the temple? People were talking about it. There's whispers and rumors. He might come to the temple. There might be something great happening. There's a risk of an insurrection. Um, I'm sure the Roman soldiers were on guard as the city was swelling up. Something great could have possibly happened that day. So Jesus is prepared to go into this you know, I, I hope I've painted a good picture of kind of a city intention. There could be something happening. There's too many people for the Roman guards to, to handle if something was to break out. And so Jesus is prepared to go into the situation. Jesus has told people that he's the Messiah. And on previous occasions, for example, in um, John chapter 6, verse 15, 
there's an account of where people actually wanted to seize Jesus and make him king. They wanted to force him to become to become king. And uh, Jesus foiled that attempt. Attempt. Um, he escaped through the crowd and went to a quiet place because he didn't want to become an earthly king. That wasn't part of his plan, and also because the time wasn't right. But here we have an account in Mark 11 where the timing is right, and Jesus declares himself the Messiah, and he makes intentional steps towards proclaiming that to everyone. He does it also in fulfillment of prophecy. If you turn to uh, Zach, well, you don't have to turn to it, but Zechariah 9, 9 verses 9, which is a prophecy we'll read here in a minute, um, but this would have been known to the people at the time. Jesus goes in to Jerusalem and and basically makes this big statement. And the prophecy is this, Zechariah 9, verses 9. Rejoice, O people of Zion! Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem! Look, your king, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. So the people of the time, I think, they, they would have known all these historical references. They would go to the temple on the Sabbath. They would hear the ancient prophets read. They were familiar with these prophecies, with these sayings. And so when they saw someone riding on a colt into the up into the temple, right, they knew they knew the significance of that. Um, there was also a great royal heritage of someone being from the tribe of Judah. I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis 49. So this goes, this goes way back. So this is called the patriarchal blessing. So this is, you've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being the, the fathers or the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. Jacob has his 12 sons, and so on his deathbed, Jacob proclaims these blessings on all of his sons. And in verse 8, so Genesis 49, verse 8, he proclaims the blessing on Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepters will not depart from Judah. The scepter is a symbol of kingship. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. And he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branches. And he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. If you have a different translation than I do, in verse 10 it might say um, Shiloh, right? There's this word Shiloh, and Shiloh is the Hebrew word for to whom it belongs, or to, who, to, to whom he, to, uh, he whose right it is, right? Like someone whose rightful inheritance is the kingdom. So that's, a, that's an early reference to the tribe of Judah, of whom would come the great kings David and Solomon, and of whose lineage Jesus could also be trained could be um, tracked. So we're back in Jerusalem now. 
the city is swelling, and so it's swelling with all these people that are going there because of the Passover feast. So what's the Passover, right? So the Passover, again, we're not going to go back and read all this in Exodus. You can, you can look up on it. But it's when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. And uh, Moses asked, you know, if the Pharaoh let my people go. And so the, they had the ten plagues. And the final plague was that the firstborn of every family would be killed. Except God told the Jews to kill an unblemished lamb, to, to select the lamb. Um, we can take a nap down. Good. Take an unblemished lamb and sacrifice it and prepare it in a certain way and to take the blood of that lamb and to paint it on the lintels of the doorposts of, the, of their homes so that the angel of death would pass over those homes. That was a literal Passover. And ever since then, God told the, the Hebrews, celebrate this festival to remember for all generations what I have done. Uh, we have sacrificed this perfect lamb and that saved your people and let you go, right? So that's symbolic. And so as it happens, as it happens, it wasn't just as it happens, it was planned that this is the Passover feast. This is the day um, that all these people are starting to go into Jerusalem. And it was a week-long feast, so there's a, a, a time of, of ritual um, cleansing and preparation for the Passover feast. There was also a day where the Passover lamb was to be selected which was also the same day that Jesus went up into Jerusalem. There's symbolism there. The interesting thing about the Passover uh, festival or, or um, celebration was that um, scholars have calculated, um, based on the number, there's, there's indications given of how many Passover lambs would be sold and traded in the market during that during that week, and um, there was uh, a, a instruction that a Passover lamb could be uh, sacrificed per ten people or per up to a household of ten people. So they kind of extrapolated and figured, based on the number of lambs that were sold, that there must have been about close to two and a half million people coming upon Jerusalem at the time. And the interesting thing is, you know, nobody at the time thought about Jesus as the Passover lamb. All of these lambs and all of this blood that would have flowed, and I think in our culture it's kind of a grotesque thought, but all of that blood that flowed had no power to forgive sins. It had no power. It was just a ritual that they were going through. None of that blood had any power, okay? But here's Jesus as the true Passover lamb, coming up into Jerusalem, preparing to sacrifice his life as the ultimate Passover lamb. Once and for all, his blood would be shed for the forgiveness of all sins of humankind for all of eternity. Even John, uh, John the Baptist, in John 1, verse 29, as John the Baptist was baptizing and Jesus came along, what did he say? Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there's also already early indications that Jesus was the Lamb of the God who would take away the sins of the world. So back to our passage here. So Jesus is staying in Bethany with his disciples, and he tells them to go over to Bethphage. Uh, doesn't tell us specifically which village came first, but anyways, go to the other village, and get this donkey, 
And in fact, it was a colt, so the, the little one of the donkey, right? And uh, tell the owner, the Lord has needed it. And, you know, some scholars have debated about whether this was prearranged or whether, uh, you know, this owner of the donkey knew that Jesus was coming and he left the donkey out there. And I don't know if that really matters so much, other than it matters that the intentional purpose was that this would be a donkey, this wouldn't be any other animal. And that the owner said, you know, Lord, whatever you need, I'm giving it to you. You're the Lord. You, you take what I have. And um, I'm not going to ask any questions. The choice of a donkey was deliberate. Um, I don't know if any of you had the chance to go over to Arbutus Meadows and see the donkey there. I have, and it's no offense, but it's not an impressive animal. <laughs> it doesn't make pleasant sounds, and it doesn't look like it. You know, you don't look at it twice and go, "Wow, did you see the donkey? That's great." And uh, but in those days, a donkey was a royal animal. Um, it was not a not just a beast of burden, but it was also considered a noble beast. And um, for example, King David and King Solomon had had royal donkeys, and they would use those um, in a procession when a king was to be crowned. The the king to be sat on this donkey and paraded in front of the people. And there's also an account of another king, King Jehu, um, who we might be less familiar with. You can read up on that. He's the one who kind of battled against uh, the evil Ahab and Jezebel. You remember that story? And so King Jehu also was was crowned as a as a king, and he was also paraded into Jerusalem on a donkey. So again, people knew their history. They knew the significance of the donkey. So, you know, I get to this point and, and, you know, we talk about the triumphal entry and I think most of our Bibles, this, this part of the, the chapter here is titled the triumphal entry. And I thought, what's the, what's the triumph? Like triumph is kind of after the battle, right? Like you first, you got to do something and then you got to overcome that and then you triumph. And it's definitely a celebratory entrance, like kind of like we had this morning with palm branches and their celebration. But I don't know if there's really been a whole lot of triumph yet. I think there must have been triumph in Jesus' personal life, because Jesus being fully God and also fully human, there must have been a temptation to say, man, I don't want to do this, because this is the culmination of his mission and his purpose on earth. Now he's going to go into this den of thieves. He's going to walk straight into the enemy's cauldron, if you will, and set off a cascade of events that are going to end up with his torture and humiliation and death. Man, do I really want to do this? He must have thought. Maybe there's a temptation to actually become a real king. Like he's got all you know, the, the key pieces in place. He could have maybe thought about becoming a real king. Maybe there's a triumph over his own personal temptation, but I, I think at that point he hadn't really triumphed yet. That triumph would come about a week later, right? When he would die and when he would rise again. That would be the true triumph. So back in our passage here, uh, verse 7. So they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. And and this, you know, this was as a saddle, of course, but then they also threw their cloaks on the ground, and this great procession of people that were following him 
Uh, they had palm branches, someone up ahead, someone behind, and they declared him king, essentially. They shouted, Hosanna. They threw their coats on the ground as a, as a way of saying, again, it was a symbolic gesture, as a way of saying, almost literally, you can walk on me. We, we uh, um, confirm you as king, as lord over us. You can tread on us. Here's my coat, right? And this wasn't like they didn't have a closet full of coats. This must have been their only uh, coat or tunic for a poor uh, peasant. And they threw it on the ground and let him tread all over it. It was their submission to a king, but it wasn't It wasn't in a way of saying, save us from our sins, right? Again, there's this misunderstanding. They weren't saying, save us from our save us from our sins, be the king of my life. They were saying, save us from the Romans, be a new J- Jewish king, get on the throne, be the new, you know, the new one in the line of David. But this part is exciting for us to read, right? Because for most of the Gospels we go through and we follow the, joke of the story of Jesus and he's despised and, and he's downtrodden and he's rejected. And so finally we get to this point where it's like he's our hero and finally he's being recognized as the hero in the story. And uh, people are shouting Hosanna and proclaiming him as king. Um, if you turn with me to Psalm 118, this uh, 25 to 27. The crowd is shouting Hosanna. You know, when we sing Hosanna, we think of it as uh, traditionally it's kind of a joyful proclamation, but it literally means save now, right? So they're shouting to Jesus, proclaiming to him, save now, save us, save us from our oppression, save us from the Romans. Save us, be our king. And also here in Psalm 118, uh, verse 25, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. So this was a passage they would have been familiar with. And this is what they're shouting. This is their basically their coronation moment for their new king. Again, the timing was right for this. They had previously tried to make Jesus king and he, he avoided that. But finally now, Jesus is allowing this. He's, it seems like he's drinking it all in, right? He's not saying, guys, no, 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 don't you know, stop it. He's, it seems from the story here, from the passage, that he's allowing this. Because the timing was right. Because Jesus knew going into Jerusalem with this kind of procession, everything that was to happen that day would incite the leaders who wanted to put an end to him. It would incite these events. It would, would accelerate his, his trial and his, his execution and his rising again on the third day. The timing was right for that. But the people that were following him, you know, they were only following because this was an exciting moment, right? This was good. It's, it's always, we know, it's good to be part of a crowd where everybody's gathered along. It's exciting. You're all on some positive high vibe, right? And a lot of those people, by week's end, they would all, they would all walk away, right? When Jesus was no longer the popular king that they thought he was going to be, 
they disappeared. Even some of his closest disciples, even Peter, his, his sidekick, if you will, even he denied him three times. That's the question for us, right? Do we stick to Jesus when the going is good, when it's when there's a big crowd that we're all with, or do we stick with him to the end? Are we faithful and true to him? Are we fickle friends like those, those in the crowd were that day? So Jesus goes up into Jerusalem, and uh, from the passage here, it doesn't give us a whole lot of detail, but it says he went into Jerusalem, and he went to the temple. This is verse 11 I'm reading. He went into Jerusalem, went to the temple, and looked around at everything. But since it was, over, since it was already late, he went over to Bethany with the twelve. It's kind of like one of those movies. You ever watch a movie where it's all exciting and then suddenly it's over? You're like, wait a minute, what happened? Right? So this seems to start with such a crescendo, with such an excitement. There's a new king. He's going to be crowned. This is a royal procession. There's shoutings of Hosanna. Praise him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then it's like someone let the air out of the balloon. Right? Because Jesus wasn't the real earthly king for that day. So he went back. And uh, as they, they were talking this morning, he was going to come back the following day and do some cleanup at, at the temple. But this gives us a glimpse that he went into the temple. Um, Mark here briefly says that he just looked around. I think in some of the other Gospels, there's a bit more detail there. He must have looked around in, in sorrow at the fact that his father's house, the temple, had turned into this den of thieves. Again, imagine the, the, the hundreds and thousands of of animals sold and traded and sacrificed the lambs and doves, the money changers, the crowds, right? The focus wasn't on God. The focus was on the business and the ritual and everything that was happening there. And here Jesus was literally the Passover lamb. Nobody recognized him as such until much later. The story seems like it's over because this wasn't Jesus' real, real coronation, right? Jesus was going to have two actual coronations after this, true coronations. One was going to be his heavenly coronation, and one was going to be his earthly coronation. If you turn with me to Philippians 2, verse 9, Jesus has already had his heavenly coronation. After Jesus died, and he rose again. He was seated at the right hand of the Father. He ascended to heaven. And in Philippians 2, verses 9, it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So you see, Jesus has already been crowned the King of Heaven. He's already seated at the right hand of God. He's been given that, that great, magnificent seat of glory. But his earthly coronation, that's yet to come. And we read about that in Revelation, in the book of Revelation. So turn with me to Revelation 19, uh, verse 11. It 
says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on, on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on a white horse and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So when Jesus returns, it's going to be very different than what we're reading here in Mark about him riding on a lowly donkey. To most people, he's going to be unrecognizable, and those who don't know him are going to be trembling in fear. And it says here, everyone, everyone is going to acknowledge that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and every knee will bow and confess that. And, you know, we, we need to recognize that we often have this picture of Jesus as a, as a humble king and a servant king, and that's what's portrayed in the Gospels. But when he comes back, it will be with fury. And I pray that we're ready. I pray that each one of us has has prepared room in our hearts to accept him as Savior, so that when he comes back, we'll be ready for him. Uh, I want to just read a quote here from um, that I came across. I, I thought it was quite uh, um, quite good for today. This is written by someone named Alexander McLaren. He's a minister who lived about 200 years ago. It's written in a bit of older English, so bear with me. We need nothing more, we should desire nothing more earnestly than that he would come to us. Search me, O Christ, and know me, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Jesus Christ is the King of England, or Canada, as truly as he is the King of Zion. He is your King and mine. He comes to each of us, patient, meek, loving, ready to bless and to cleanse. Dear brother and sister, do you open your heart to him? Do you acknowledge him as your king? Do you count it your highest honor if he would use you and your possessions and condescend to say that he has need of such poor creatures as we are? Do you cast your garments in the way and say, Ride on, great prince? Do you submit yourself to his inspection, to his cleansing? Remember, he came once on a colt, the pole of a donkey, meek, and having salvation, he will come again on the white horse in righteousness to judge and to make war and with power to destroy. Oh, I beseech you, welcome him as he comes in gentle love, that when he comes in judicial majesty, that you may be among that you may be among the armies of heaven that follow after, and from immortal tongues utter rapturous and undying hosannas. So that's as far as we have the word of the Lord this morning.